The New York City Marathon. Freezing at about halfway across the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and the wind was blowing sideways at 20 to 30 miles an hour with gusts up to 50 miles an hour. Physical shivers racked me in the orange staging area on the island. My giant trash bag cut the wind but did little to warm me. I was thankful to have the giant trash bag, but would have rather had a full-size wool blanket or a poncho like Clint Eastwood wore in the Spaghetti Westerns, or a down jacket. The temperature was not that bad. It was in the high 30s Fahrenheit, but the cutting wind dropped the perceived temperature to single digits. I was feeling it. We were uh, half a mile or so in, still on the upward slope of the bridge, with a steady stream of runners, and I didn't want to get in the way of anyone trying to race, but I recognized this as that iconic photo that everyone takes from this race, and I had to find a way to get it. I was not racing this race. I had my iPhone with me to facilitate these sorts of moments. I felt compelled to fill the social media void with my fuzzy pictures of randomness to show my sponsors, the good people of ASICS America, that yeah, I do occasionally attempt some content of the typical race blogger type. I saw my chance, and I jumped onto the two or three foot wide barrier that separates inbound and outbound traffic on the top deck of the bridge. Safely out of the flow, I pulled off one glove with my teeth and took a few shots of the horizon, the cityscape beyond the river and the bridge. There's a guy, a few feet away, on the median, with me, who has one of those giant cameras. I don't give him too much thought. There are camera people all over the place on this course. One guy is lying on his belly, shooting the runner's feet as they swarm across the bridge. Who am I to get in the way of their art? Then I notice this guy is moving closer to me, and it's a bit creepy because when I glance his way, he's focusing on me, so I just try to ignore him and get my shots. Turns out he's the photographer for Reuters, and he's giving me the iconic Seinfeld moment of the weekend. In the picture he takes, I'm holding up my cell phone, yellow glove dangling from my teeth. Desperately clutching last year's orange parka, with the wind trying to blow it out of my hands. I've got my gray A6 beanie, a long-sleeve A6 plain red shirt, not anywhere near thick enough for this wind assault on this bridge. My A6 shorts and my E33 race shoes with the green calf sleeves. The caption will read, A runner takes a selfie on the Verrazano Bridge at the start of the New York City Marathon. It wasn't a selfie. But who am I to argue with the media moguls of New York? Ironically, those were the last pictures I took during the race because I realized at that point my phone was going dead and I might need the GPS to get back to the hotel later after the finish, so I powered it down. I'm also wearing a scarf that I bought on the street on a corner in Midtown. I would wear that scarf for the whole race, rakishly tied like the adornment of a World War I fighter pilot ace in an open canopy, I fantasize about founding a whole line of racing scarfs. I will call this version the Sopwith Camel. I can buy them on the corner for $5 and sell them to triathletes for $50. I'll just tell them it takes six seconds off their runtime. Triathletes will buy anything. 
The last piece of clothing is an impromptu gator I've constructed by tearing the pom-pom off and gutting the Dunkin' Donuts hats they gave us in the Athlete's Village, ingenuity bred by desperation. I would have gladly gutted a tauntaun from the ice planet Hoth with a lightsaber and crawled into its bowels for the body heat, if that was an option. I'm also holding a plastic shopping bag. In that bag is three hammer gels and an empty Gatorade bottle. I held on to the Gatorade bottle, thinking that I might need to refill it on the bridge, given that I'd just finished drinking the contents. If I have to relieve myself, I want to be tidy about it. Every time anyone has ever talked about the New York City Marathon to me, somehow the conversation always ends up at, if you're on the lower deck of the bridge, you get peed on by the guys on the upper deck. In fact, there are signs along the start that threatened disqualification for anyone caught doing so. But on this day, I don't see a single guy attempting that feat. It would take a brave and talented man to relieve himself in this crosswind and temperature. The orange parka is from last year's race. I have upgraded from my plastic trash bag. The trash bag was good, but this is warmer, and I need to get my core temp back up to normal. Ironically, when I got my trash bag out, I realized that it was slightly used. At one point, I think I had actual garbage in it. I just grabbed it out of my car. When I laid out the trash bag the night before, I realized it wasn't fresh out of the box. But it is what it is, and I wiped it down with a hotel face towel. I used the bib safety pins to carefully scribe perforations for the head hole and the arm holes, like an old computer paper or junk mail so I could easily push the patches out in the morning without having to chew out a gash with my teeth. When you exit the holding area from the staging area into the starting line on the bridge, they have big boxes to donate your throwaway clothes to the homeless. I knew my core temperature was low from the bone-rattling, shaking, and shivering, and I looked for an opportunity to better my sartorial situation. I thought a nice hooded sweatshirt or a knit pullover would be the perfect upgrade to run the first couple of miles in until my core temp came back up. At the homeless boxes, I tore off my plastic bag and grabbed that thick quilted finisher's poncho from the 2013 race. They don't have armholes, but they are giant, and you can wrap them around you like your grandmother's cardigan. I made a joke that I hope the guy who tossed it out didn't have Ebola or bedbugs. I had a politically incorrect but amusing mental picture that they should bust the homeless out to the start and have them set up on the bridge so people could pick out the homeless person they wanted to give their old sweatshirt to. It would be a nice way to mainstream the disadvantage of the city. They could hand out cups of fortified wine like Thunderbird or Mogan David to warm up the aspirants at the start. In the starting corral, I had a couple of guys from Indiana take my photo. America the Beautiful played and I reluctantly took off my hat. They played New York, New York, which was awesome. And then, without further fanfare, we bent our thousands of feet into the wind of the Narrows. Plastic bags and clothing of all sort blew sideways through the crowd and wrapped around people like suicidal jellyfish. We were off. Ah!
I walked into the lobby, groggy from my flight and a bit lost in time and space. I'd been battling the cold that tore through North America the previous week and trying to get enough sleep to beat it back. I was coming off a short week and had run the Marine Corps Marathon five days earlier. ASICS asked me to fly Thursday night to be there in time for the Friday morning warm-up run. I was taking a rare day off on Friday to accommodate. They flew me down on the short hop shuttle into Kennedy from Boston and had a limo waiting for me to take me to the hotel. I definitely felt like a poser, but did my best to roll with it. When confronted by these situations where you feel the imposter syndrome creeping into the back of your lizard brain, I found it best to have a sense of humor. Smile and enjoy yourself. Try not to talk too much, and try to inquire and understand the people you meet. A6 was putting me up at the New York Palace Hotel, a five-star joint on Madison Ave in Midtown, across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was a beautiful hotel with spacious rooms, definitely not the Spartan accommodations of a journeyman marathoner. The travel part didn't bother me. I spend most of my time in hotels and airplanes. I'm hearty and hale in my adventuring, but but I'd be lying if I didn't say I felt a bit different, a bit fish out of water to be part of an industry-sponsored junket of sort. Not icky, per se, but more like the guy without a cool costume at a costume party. In the lobby, Noelle, our A6 liaison, was chatting with a couple guys. She noticed me lurking about in my head-to-toe A6 gear and introduced herself. I could have sworn one of the guys was Ryan Hall, but I'm such a meathead with the social graces I didn't want to make a faux pas. Eventually, Nicole introduced me to them, and the young, blonde guy leans in and shakes my hand and says, Hi, I'm Ryan. And the other guy introduced himself as Andy. I would later learn that this was Andy Potts, the Iron Man champion. And it cracked me up that Ryan had the humility to assume that I didn't know who he was. Moving to the bar with Noel, we ordered drinks and waited for the other out-of-towners. Mini-marathoners, that's what they called them. They were five-inch-tall statuettes of us. They had taken photos of us and rendered them with the latest computer-aided design into mini-3D renditions of us in full stride. Noel passed them out while we, the A6 blogger team, the editor's challenge team, were having our drinks and getting to know each other. They were a big hit. I met two of the other bloggers, Megan, I run for wine, from Florida, and Brian, pavement runner, from the Bay Area. Brian's mini-marathon had a hilarious beer belly, which Brian does not possess in real life. Megan's mini-marathoner had brilliant red hair which she does not possess in real life. My mini-marathoner was excellent. They gave me back a full head of hair, made me skinny, took at least ten years off me, and made me look vaguely like Will Wheaton. I'll take it. And, of course, the jokes flowed in. Does it have kung fu grip? Is it a bobblehead? Yeah. You know you've made it when they're making action figures out of you. New York City is a funny, kinetic, and desperate place. 
I walked the streets of Midtown doing some people watching, beat down bow-legged men in suits trucking down the sidewalk, the street vendors, the tourists always looking up at the buildings in awe, the many languages, and all the smokers. It was like being in Paris or Montreal in 1970 with all the cigarette smoke being exhaled into my personal space. I circled the hotel over to Park Ave and 1st and 48th and 54th, getting the lay of the land and taking mental notes of restaurants and stores and milestones, the Helmsley, Grand Central, the ebb and flow and surge of pedestrians. I passed a fruit vendor and decided to take the plunge. I was quite proud of myself, having procured some bananas and plums and pears. And it was later that I discovered that the vendor had strategically placed the fruit stickers over the moldy spots. Ah, New York, a kinetic and desperate place. Friday morning, dawn gray, but I was up before the sun. I went to the Starbucks next door and treated myself to coffee and an oatmeal, not knowing what the day might have in store nutritionally. We had a rendezvous with the cars to shuttle us over to the park for our warm-up run event. Noel was the leader, like a tour guide, with her chargers in tow, and we all boarded limos for the ride over and gathered in a restaurant for coffee and sundries. Among the assembled crowd was a throng of actual journalists from places like Rodale and USA Today. Nice, literate, sporty journalists, guests of ASICs, all assembling for coffee and bagels and selfies with the elites. Coach Castor was there, Andrew Castor, holding court, and he was in charge of the morning exercise. Andy Potts was there, as was Ryan and some of the other elite athletes from the A6 stable. My new friend Grace from Lean Girls Club was there, and I gave her a big hug, as was the other Megan, Greg New York Sweat, New York City Sweat, and our blogger team was complete. And then we went for a run. Up until this point, it was just super surreal for me. All this attention for a journeyman marathoner of little account, I won't lie, it felt a little icky. I love running. I love talking about, writing about, rolling around in the smell of running. But it's my hobby, not my job. All these industry folks and media people subconsciously gave me the heebie-jeebies, and I consciously determined to smile and be humble and ask people about themselves. Coach Castor led us around the park and out to the finish line. And this is where it all got normal for me again. As soon as I felt the kinetic relief of feet hitting pavement, my whole world resolved back into that happy place. The veil dropped and I was out for a run with some new friends. We were all taking pictures and chatting as we jogged around the park. I told Coach Castor how perfect his form was. I chatted with Ryan and Andy and Coach Castor about races and shoes and injuries and all those things that we default to like old men in a cafe over coffee. This is the human and democratic sinew of our sport. It is the most human of endeavors to run. We pause for team pictures, and I look lean and happy in my short shorts. Noelle told me that the only other person she knew who wore short shorts was Ryan, and that's good enough for me. Back in the restaurant for coffee and schmoozing, I had a chance to chat with Andy Potts about his Kona race, and I asked him what I thought was an interesting and erudite question about how he resolves the challenge of dropping into a flow state 
during the grueling endurance intensity of an Ironman with having to stay aware and present of the immediate tactics of the race. And up until this point, he had been all small talk and banter, but when we started talking about racing, his inner competitor came out. He got serious and intense. I saw the character of the Ironman champion emerge from the shadows, and he told me about how when someone makes a move, you don't let them go. They take it, and it's up to you to decide whether you're going to let them take it. And I chatted with Ryan, Ryan Hall, too. It was just small talk. And with the intent of small talk, I asked him what he had coming up next. And he got a bit dark, dropping the California persona. I realized that I had unintentionally asked a question that he got asked often with different intent by reporters. A question they asked that really was, when are you going to live up to the expectations that the world has burdened you with? Here's a man that can crank out 26 sub-five-minute miles. He's got nothing to prove to me. I just wanted to talk about running and racing and geek out about the sport we love. There were some speeches as the elites all gave us their tips on running our marathons. At some point, Dina Castor came in, and she gave us a talk as well. She filled a plate at the buffet and sat at a table to pick at it. I saw that the other bloggers were sort of hovering behind her chair, so I took the initiative and asked Noelle to to introduce us and have her chat with us a bit. And Dina was a sweetheart and immediately acquiesced. She told a story about the Philadelphia Half Marathon that I had read somewhere before, and she told Megan that she loved the I Run for Wine blog name because she ran for wine too. strange dynamic between New York City and Boston. It's a bit of a love-hate relationship, like sisters that were born too close together and forced to share the same room. The typical exchange I had while in the city goes like this. I would meet a New Yorker and they would say, so, where are you from? Boston. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's quite all right. You know what I like about Boston? No, what? The ride to the airport, when I know I'm getting the hell out of there. You think I'm joking. I had this exact conversation with more than one person. And they weren't being mean. In the zeitgeist of the New Yorker, anyone living anywhere else is only doing so until they can figure out how to move to the Big Apple. And I won't bother telling them it isn't so. They wouldn't hear me anyhow. Another conversation I had more than once was this one. How many times have you run the New York City Marathon? this is my first. Really? Why haven't you run it before? Well, because it's a giant pain in the ass, it's expensive, and it's hard to get to, and it's hard to get into. Well, you must be excited about running the best marathon in the world. 
Yes, I've run it 16 times, but I hear this one is pretty good, too. After we got off the windy chaos of the bridge and into the protecting streets of Brooklyn, it warmed right up. We were moving. Everyone was happy, happy, happy with the early race excitement of finally being out there after much anticipation and wait. I tossed my sundry items of extra clothing away as we exited the bridge, taking care to place them downwind and out of the way. The first few miles, as athletes discarded clothing, you had to watch your step. The wind was swirling items around. Bags and shirts and blankets were doing mad dances in the street. The sun was peeking through, and the buildings blocked the wind intermittently. It changed from a sideways bluster to an occasional vortex as you crossed the side street gaps. They had removed much of the tenting and the mile markers due to the wind. I heard they also had to change the wheelchair start at the last minute to get them off the bridge. As is always the case in the first few miles of a marathon, I was running easy and in my element. The pack was thick, but not as thick as you'd expect with a record 56,000-plus participants. You could find a line and run free without sidestepping or pulling into the gutters. The crowds were consistent and vigorous, lining the course. I was my usual chatty self and talked to a couple people with Boston Marathon shirts on. I had forgotten to bring my Garmin, so I had no idea on pace or heart rate. I just ran. You should try that sometime. It's quite liberating. At my age, the heart rate data just scares me anyhow. Without the mile marks, I had to ask other runners where we were and back into the pace. My plan was a bit muddy and half-hearted. I figured I could run five minutes and walk one minute, and that would be nice, easy, four-hour-ish marathon. Having run Marine Corps seven days previously, I knew I wasn't in a position to jump on this race with any enthusiasm. With the combination of no mile marks and feeling fine, I forgot my plan to take walk breaks and just ran. I stuffed the three gels down the back of my glove and carried the sleeping phone in the other hand. I had a baggie of Enduralites in the shorts pocket. I had my room key and an interesting keycard-sized back pocket that I had discovered in these ASIC shorts. I was wearing them for the first time. I had to add the extra security of a bib pin to hold this mystery pocket closed because it had no zipper or button or Velcro. Thank heavens I had ignored my impish impulse to wear short shorts this morning. The extra four inches of tech fabric might have kept me out of the hospital for hypothermia, but I kept the scarf. Whereas I had no need to pee off the bridge, I did start assessing the Portage on distribution patterns with some interest. They seemed to show up every few K. First few had long lines. I saw an opportunity around 10K and took care of my Gatorade recycling problem without any weight. This first stretch through Brooklyn was wonderful. Everyone on the course was happy to be running. The folks in the crowd were abundant and enthusiastic. There were several road-sized bands, mostly playing classic rock genre music, which I thought was great. But it reminded me of how old I'm getting that 80% of the people in the race had no idea what I meant by statements like, this was from their Fillmore East live album. I would rather have a less than fully talented live rock band than someone blaring the Rocky theme song out a window anytime. I pulled up beside a young woman with a giant smile on her face. Me smiling and pulling up alongside. Hi, how you doing? Her gushing. This is great. Isn't this great? Me? Yeah, it's it's something. Where are you from? Oh, I live here. Isn't this great? Sure. Um, so why is it so great? The people. They're just great. 
What do you mean? They're acting nice for a change? Her scowling and turning to look at me for the first time. Where are you from? Boston. Oh, I'm sorry. So I asked her, have you run this before? And she said, no, it's my first time. I asked her, do you have some sort of time goal? And she said, no, I'm just enjoying myself. So I cautioned, well, I would recommend saving some of this enthusiasm for that last 10K. You may need it. I had three goals for this race. My A goal was don't die. My B goal was don't die. And my C goal was don't die. And I'm proud to say I met all my goals. Additional bonuses were that I squeaked under four hours and had a blast. My doctor told me I'd never run again was one of the interesting snippets of conversation that I had while waiting in the cold. The New York City Marathon, like many big city races, has a substantially large block of waiting. For those who are not sponsored athletes, it starts at 3 or 4 in the morning, getting to and waiting on the ferry to Staten Island. For me, it meant a leisurely walk, once more led by our A6 tour director, Noel, down to the Sheridan to board the chartered buses that would drive us to the start. Here's an early marathon start tip. Go to Starbucks the night before and order a nice high-quality coffee. This way, when you wake up in your hotel room, you have coffee ready for your breakfast. No muss, no fuss. Okay, it's cold, but it's better than messing with the hotel coffee maker for some weak-ass crap that won't get your pipes moving. We had to get up early, but the fall-back time change mitigated that, and it wasn't a hassle at all. It was still a long stop-and-go ride out to Staten Island. As we sat on the bridge in traffic, the bus rocked from side to side in the wind. I had been a proper dick for the last couple of days, making fun of the other runners who were super concerned about the cold weather forecast. 40 degrees? Ha ha! Are you kidding? Up where I'm from, that's shorts weather! Turns out the joke was on me. When we offloaded and made our way to the staging areas, the wind gust tore through me. My thin tech shirt, shorts, and snarky bus and attitude were no match for the wind chill. By the time we had taken some more group photos before breaking up for our respective staging areas, my teeth were chattering. It wasn't that cold, but it was overcast, and the wind was ripping through us. I got into my slightly used giant garbage bag to find my staging area, but by that point it was too late and I was chilled to my core. A couple millimeters of black plastic wasn't going to help. The starting area of the New York City Marathon is the most giant complex operation I have ever seen at a race. First, the buses disgorge you into a triage area where a gaggle of friendly New York City police officers filters you through metal detectors and pat-downs. Then you disperse off into a color-coded village. Once in the village, you watch the giant screen for your start wave to be called. When your wave is called, you make your way to one of the several coded exits. When the wave in front of you moves to the start line, you progress through your exit to the holding pen. Then you get released to the starting area on the bridge for your start wave. All of this is coded onto your bib. For example, I was Orange B3. This meant I went to the Orange Village and moved to Exit B when my wave, Wave 3, was called. In reality, what it meant was me wandering around showing my bib and asking people where I should be. I didn't check a bag. 
so I didn't have to deal with the bag check at the start or the bag retrieval at the end, which meant a couple lines I didn't have to stand in, but it also the risk of hypothermia at the start and at the finish if I got the clothing thing wrong. I didn't die, but I sure would have loved to have had a throwaway sweatshirt. As I made my way through this hyper-organized, on-a-grand-scale machine, I thought about what 56,000 people, plus volunteers, all in one place, sounds and feels like. This is the size of one of Caesar's armies, with which was conquered Gaul and Britannia. Imagine all these people, if you would, carrying swords and running at another similarly-sized bristling force. The scale of it is moving and thought-provoking. In the Orange Village, I found my free Dunkin' Donuts hat and got some coffee. I heard my name called and got to spend some time with a couple of Run Run Live friends, Krista and Carl, shivering on a piece of grass with them, taking selfies and waiting for our waves to be called. One thing I have to give the race organization credit for is access to Portageons. I think these folks had procured every Portageon in the free world. They were in the village, and more importantly, in the various queuing areas, at the exits and the start. There's no way you could have that many people waiting around for that long without access to porta potties. But no one was denied their personal respite. If you should ever travel to the city of New York, there are three rules that you should never, ever break. Rule number one. When traveling to the city of New York, never, ever accompany a strange woman home. Well, it's possible you didn't know about rule number one. You're a kind person to consider a person, a person weird with the welfare of others. You have accompanied a strange woman home simply because you are a nice guy or girl. Well, you are all right as long as you do not break. Rule number Two. Never, never go into her house for drinks. <laughs> well, it's possible you didn't know about rule number one. You're a kind person to consider a person a person worried with the welfare of others. You have accompanied a strange woman home just to be a nice person. It's completely likely that you have disregarded rule number two because after all... Never, never dance the polka. After the warm-up run with the rest of the team and the elites, I was riding the elevator back up to the room. I was chatting with Jason Saltmarsh from, from saltmarshrunning.com, who lives up where I do, and another young woman got in the elevator. We small-talked up a couple floors. Jason got off, leaving just the young woman and me. So I asked her, what do you do for A6? She looked at me a bit befuddled and responded, I'm Sarah Hall. It was a bit awkward for both of us, but I smiled my way through it and said, Oh, I just ran with your husband. After geeking out with the elites, I was all fired up and feeling very grateful for having been given the opportunity and the invitation. When I got back to the room, I sat down and recorded a YouTube video and publicly thanked A6, and I mused on the unifying force that running and our community is. Had to get that off my chest. Apparently, the fact that I had taken the day off didn't register with anyone I work with because the emails and phone calls were dogging me all day. 
Isn't that one of the truisms of life? Nothing goes on all week and then you take a day off and all hell breaks loose? I beat back some emails and started putting together some material for a podcast. I had nothing else to do and it was still early in the day on Friday, so I figured I'd go down to the expo and pick up my number and beat the rush. I was still smarting from the previous week when I had wasted three hours standing in line on Saturday trying to pick up my Marine Corps bib. Cell phone to ear, I set off to find the Javits Center in the expo. Outside the hotel, the well-dressed bellman ushered me into a waiting cab for the quick ride. The cabbie, as is usual, was from some non-English-speaking part of the African subcontinent, but was able to make it clear to me that the Javits Center wasn't a good enough fare for him and tossed me out of the cab at the end of the block. Ah, New York. Funny, kinetic, and desperate place. And they wonder why Uber is so popular. But being a marathoner, with time heavy on my hands, and nothing better to do, I decided to hoof it the two miles or so over to the expo. Along the way, I could get some phone calls done, take some pictures, and really just relax and enjoy the day. As I drew nearer, I picked up a few other strays from various parts of the world, all questing in the same direction. The triage at the expo wasn't bad, and I got through to pick up my bib fairly fairly quickly, but I may have accidentally cut the line. The ASIC store in the expo with the race-specific gear was giant. I would have bought a hat, but I already had so much gear from ASICs, and I didn't feel like fighting the line that snaked all around the store. Wandering around with that glazed-over look, I felt a tap on my shoulder. Are you Chris from Run Run Live? It was Brandon Wood. No, not the Brandon Wood, the opera singer and Iron Man, but another Brandon Wood, I Run Alaska, on Twitter who was from said Northern Territory, in for the race. We had a nice chat. Later in the day, I had another one of those Seinfeld moments when I cracked open the race magazine that they were handing out and saw Brandon's mug staring out at me as one of the featured runners. I sent him a tweet, and it turns out nobody told him about it, and he was thrilled to get his 15 minutes. I wandered around the expo and noted Ryan and Sarah signing autographs, but didn't stand in that line either. I'm not much for lines. The Kenyans were there on display as well, including Wilson Kipsing, the eventual winner, and Jeffrey Mutai, last year's winner. I went by the Garmin booth and tried to make them talk me into buying a new watch, but they couldn't close. I got bored and wandered off to find the buses back to Midtown. Apparently, these buses were running from Grand Central and back to the Javits, but it was a bit of a madhouse. It was easier to take the bus back than to locate the bus in traffic on the streets outside Grand Central. Back at the hotel, I beat back the tide of emails. I met Megan, I run for wine, and her newly minted hubby for a few drinks, grabbed some Chipotle for dinner, and went back to the room to write and work on the podcast. Even though there were 56,000 runners in this race, I never felt crowded or restricted. As we rolled through Harlem with its gospel choirs and on into Queens, the roads were wide and free-flowing. There were a couple times where the roads pinched in for some reason, but but I never felt like I was having a sidestep or about to trip. The pack was dense, but you could get through it. As we got into the middle miles, I started to work in some one-minute walk breaks every ten minutes or so, or whenever convenient water stops appeared. With this cadence, I would pass and repass the same people several times. There were a bunch of people with orange shirts that said, Imagine a world without cancer on the back. 
And I had that thought running through my head, thinking about my dad and coach and all the other people I know that end up on the losing end of this disease. Another standout attribute of this race versus any other race is the number of international participants. I must have missed the memo, but apparently you were supposed to run in the standard uniform of your country. In my wave, there were Switzerland, Sweden, Denmark, France, Brazil, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Australia, South Africa, and tens of other uniforms with flags that I could not decipher. It was almost like the Olympics in a way because all the French wore the same uniform and all the Swiss wore the same red uniform and all the Aussies wore the same green uniform. It made it easy for me to know whether an Ale Ale or an Aussie 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 was appropriate. It also made it hard for me because no one was responding to the constant stream of humorous comments that come from me during a marathon. I'd say something funny or ask a question only to be rejoined with a blank stare and a shrug. Compounding this was the high percentage of double butters who had an earbud in both ears and were unaware and unresponsive to the other 56,000 runners. Seems a bit of a waste to me to be out on this course in this city with all these people and these big crowds and then seal yourself off in your own little world. Not being able to communicate with people, I amused myself riling up the crowds and high-fiving the kids along the course. I would run along the curb yelling, who's going to give me some sugar? Getting high-fives. After the first hour at one of the walk breaks, I swallowed an Enduralite and ate an espresso gel, an espresso love goo I was carrying. I had already carried that gel for two or three entire marathons without eating it, and I figured it would, its time had come. My body felt fine. I wasn't paying attention to splits or pace. It was just another Sunday long run with a few tens of thousands of friends. Through these middle miles, the course reminded me somewhat of the Chicago Marathon as we passed through neighborhoods, each with its own character. Except, unlike Chicago, the New York City course has some hills. Nothing steep or horrible, but some long, gradual pulls nonetheless. I wouldn't call it a hard course, but it's not pancake flat either. And the other interesting topographical element is the bridges. There were five bridges, including the one you start on. When I'm not racing a course, I don't bother looking at the race course map. Part of it is I'm just not compulsive that way, and part of it is the extra element of adventure this provides me as the course rolls itself out in front of me real time. The Queensboro Bridge was one of these adventurous surprises. This comes right after... 15 miles, and including the approach and descent is well over a half mile long. This means you've got five, six, seven hundred meter hill that just seems to keep going up and up. And the strangest thing was this was the first quiet place on the course. We were on the lower deck, the inside of the bridge, and the wind was blocked by the superstructure for the most part. After all the screaming and noise and wind, we were suddenly confronted with silence and the sounds of our own striving. It was a bit eerie. Not the silence per se, but the absence of noise in the heart of this race, in the heart of this city. And this is where people were starting to show signs of tiring. I had to sidestep some walkers and pay attention to the holes, lumps, and buckles in the road that are common, more or less, across the course. Not a small group of runners was congregated at the overlook gaps in the bridge to take pictures. I trudged on up the hill in the eerie quiet to the soft sounds of treads and breathing and the rustling of clothing, 
broken occasionally by the wheel noise of traffic on the upper deck above our heads. Coming down the long slope of the Queensboro Bridge, I find myself running behind an Amazon. This young woman is tall, muscular, blonde, like something out of a cheerleading movie. My old heart and mind swoons. I lose my train of thought and stumble into a collision with one of my international friends. I smile at him, apologetically, shrug my shoulders in the direction of the Amazon, and sheepishly say, sorry, I was distracted. His broad grin tells me that some things are the same in any language. A couple characters I keep passing due to my walk-break rhythm is a pair of Irish guys in their green national uniforms, and one of them has, I'm guessing his name, Cleary on the back. Knowing that they speak a related version of my native tongue, I make a comment on one of my passes, Tough day, huh, fellas? Mr. Cleary looks at me and rejoins, without missing a beat in his best lovely brogue, Fucking brilliant. You know what they say. If it wasn't for whiskey and beer, the Irish would rule the world. I believe that to be true, and a fine lot of mad philosopher-poet kings they would make. As we cross Manhattan for the first time, I was starting to get a little tired. I ate another gel at two hours and another Enduralite. I wasn't crashing or bonking or hitting the wall or any of that other poetic nonsense. I was just tired. It had been a long week. Someone said we'd be coming back this way, and I quipped, If we've got to come back, why don't we just stay here? As we cruised the broad reaches of First Avenue, I was trying to apply my drafting skills to stay out of the wind. And I'm very good at drafting. You need to find someone about your height who's running a nice even pace, and you snuggle up into their wind shadow. Drafting works even better in a big race, because you can sometimes find two or three runners in a group creating a nice big pocket. And in big races, you can draft the double butters for miles, and they won't even know you're there. You just have to not bump them or step on them. But running down First Avenue, I couldn't figure the wind out. As you went by the cross streets, it would start as a headwind, then shift all the way around and end up as a tailwind. It was a constant swirl that made it hard to find a pocket to run in. The sun was out now. It was afternoon and warm. I was wishing I had worn sunglasses. Saturday morning, before the race, Brian, the pavement runner, had organized a tweet-up on the steps of the library in Midtown. The idea was we'd all promote it and get a big group of people and take some pictures and head for some coffee, then drop by the A6 Times Square store. It was a good plan, but we woke up to a dreary, cold drizzle. We went anyhow and had some fun with the hardy people who did show up. We took pictures, had some coffee and then made our way over to the big A6 store. Now, this A6 store near Times Square is a showplace store. It has an old New York subway car in it that's really cool. And this is where we took a couple more pictures that ended up making the rounds. Run Mike Run from Twitter took one of all of us in the subway car with his GoPro on a pole rig, and that shot ended up being picked up by Runner's World. Greg, Megan, Megan, Brian, Noel, and I all climbed up into the window display and took some great goofy shots with the mannequins. Those made the rounds, too. 
We ended up having a nice lunch over near Rockefeller Center and then drifting off in different directions. Some of these folks were understandably worried about having to run a marathon the next day. I wasn't. My goals were simple. Don't die. Back at the hotel, I used the afternoon to finish up the podcast and get some other stuff done. Having no plans for the evening, I wandered about Midtown, got some sundries, and ended up getting a plate of pasta and a beer at TGI Fridays. I picked up my Starbucks for the next morning and settled in. I wasn't sure I knew how to set my iPhone alarm for the time change, so I called the hotel operator and asked for a 4.45 wake-up call, which was really a 5.45 wake-up call, I guessed. I laid all my race kit out in the empty runner format on the floor, tried to wipe the garbage off my garbage bag, and commenced to watch a little TV. There was some really stupid zombie movie on that I started watching, but reconsidered whether that was such a good idea the night before a race. I fell asleep. I slept fine, like a man with no secrets and many friends. And my eyes popped open at 4.30, really 5.30, 15 minutes before my wake-up call, like they usually do. All the walking around the city, fighting the cold and wind all morning, and having run a marathon seven days earlier started to wear on me as we crossed over into the Bronx by mile 20. I wasn't bonking. I was just really tired. I skipped the three-hour gel in Enduralite and started taking a minute walk every five minutes. Looking at my watch and backing into the pace, I was on a 340 to 350 finish schedule if I kept the fire stoked. But I was tired. And I only had one goal, which could be accomplished with any finishing time. Coming down the bridge into the Bronx, there was a larger woman running a bit loosely in front of me. There was also one of those giant orange traffic cones in the middle of the road. I don't know how she managed to do it, but she caught her toe on the cone and started to flail. It was one of those slow-motion moments. She was in that state where she was off-balance and windmilling her arms for purchase, on that razor's edge between falling and not falling, and she was right in front of me. I reached out and grabbed her, as best I could, until she regained her heading and rejoined the flow. Coming back into Manhattan was a bit rough, but at least we had a tailwind, but I was super tired and not having much fun anymore. I just wanted to get it done. The race finished in Central Park, but to get there you have to climb a long, long hill that just seems to go on forever. I was passing the walking wounded and the walking dead, but I was still on plan to attain my primary goal of cheating the Grim Reaper once more. Once you get into the park, it's another mile plus of rolling hills to the finish. When you make that turn into the park, it's still a long way to the finish if you're hurting, but at that point you know you've got it. Along that long climb up Fifth Avenue through the park, the crowds become loud and roaring. It's a constant assault of praise and exhortation as the runners struggle up through to the finish. I crossed the line and had enough brain power left to stop my watch. It said four hours and three seconds. <laughs> I turned on my iPhone to get a finish line photo and felt a tap on my shoulder. It was Brian, the pavement runner, who had finished a couple seconds behind me. He carried a GoPro and had taken video of the race for ASICs. And later I would learn that my actual time was 3.59.52. That's nice, and I didn't die. I was glad to see Pavement Runner first, because he's a nice guy and a familiar face, and second, because I was clueless 
as to what we were supposed to do next and where we were supposed to go after the finish. I didn't check a bag, so getting one of those quilted race parkas was high on my priority list as the sun was starting to get low in the New York City skyline. Brian and I found the special VIP exit that we were supposed to use, and the volunteers were fantastic. They were like hotel concierges, telling us in great detail where we needed to go and how to get there. And we got the parkas and the food and even the warming tent where we sat for a while to get some energy back for the walk back to the hotel. And in another helping of irony, the woman sitting next to us in the warming tent was from the next town over from where I live. Brian and I set out to find the hotel and joined the long stream of thousands of trudging warriors in blue parkas like Napoleon's Grand Army retreating from Russia. Brian seemed to think he knew where we were going, so I followed his lead until I saw water in front of us and intoned that even with my limited geographical knowledge of the city, I didn't think there was a river between Central Park and Midtown. We turned around and did some more walking. My legs felt great. I felt great. This was an easy one that hadn't left a mark on me other than the tiredness of doing it. We stopped to take some tourist pictures in front of tonight's show banner. And the people passing us in the streets of the city were very nice to us. They were friendly and congratulatory. It was a nice, warm, and welcoming vibe that I've got to give the natives credit for. They liked their race. Brian asked me what I wanted to eat, and I didn't have to think about it. God help me, and apologies to the planet, I wanted a big, juicy cheeseburger with bacon, fries, and beer. Brian concurred. And after we washed up at the hotel, that's just what we did. After Brian walked us three blocks in the wrong direction, which was beginning to become one of our running gags of the weekend, we settled into Bill's Burgers and consummated our burgers and fries. The waitress, seeing our medals, refused to let us pay for our beers. I was starting to like these people. On the walk back to the hotel, I led Brian into St. Patrick's Cathedral, where a late mass was being held. I crossed myself with holy water and genuflected to the altar, and it felt somehow as if we had God's blessing on this day, and I was very grateful. Monday morning, as I flew back to Boston for a full day of work, the tweets and emails started to come in. Were you standing in the middle of the Verrazano Bridge wearing an orange parka taking pictures? Yeah, I was. You're on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. No kidding. Can you scan that and send it to me? And there I was, in full freezing-to-death glory, perched on the median taking pictures. A final Seinfeld moment. And another great irony that this Boston boy was gracing the cover of their newspaper, the caption said a runner takes a selfie on the Verrazano Bridge at the start of the New York City Marathon. It wasn't a selfie, but I guess I don't have a say in that. Then it got picked up by CNN as one of their selfies of the week. And somehow, I'm in the same gallery as Madonna and Barack Obama. At the end of the day, when I met all my new blogger friends for a final celebratory drink at a pub, my kind of place... Grace's boyfriend said, So, I guess you won the editor's challenge then. And honestly, it was the first time the thought had entered my mind that there was any contest involving finish time, especially between me and these social media friends. A bit jolly from the beer, with my windburn subsiding into the cheery glow of my bearded cheeks, I turned to my new friends and I said, If there's one thing I've learned from all the marathons, 
and all the years is that you have to celebrate every one. You don't know what's coming next. Celebrate today and now in every race because this could very well be as good as it gets.
style. I got to go and do your vibe, get the ass to put, get the ass to put, we're down inside the bass around and do the thing. 